So I got uh, two things uh, before I start. Uh, one, I, I grew up in church, and I've uh, heard a lot of Sunday school stories, Bible stories, not quite as I heard this morning in Ted's song, but, but uh, a lot of those, that's good. And uh, also, I forgot to mention uh, the, the power of one, just a reminder of what that is. You think just one dollar, one person, what can I do? But when we, we put it all together, when each person just, just takes one dollar a week and puts it in, it can make a difference. Uh, this last week, uh, we were able to help with a, a woman uh, and her daughter. Uh, husband walked out uh, to a new girlfriend and left her with a lot of bills to play, pay and rent was due. And we were able to help her with her rent. Um, I can announce that here in the first service, what we did. Second service, I can't because she showed up last Sunday to the second service because somebody cared. And so that's why we're doing the power of one. Um, so we're going to continue with some Sunday school stories uh, that maybe many of you heard uh, but these aren't just Sunday school for us. Uh, the life of Daniel, powerful uh, for the way it uh, relates to us. And so we're going to uh, keep going with our uh, study on, um, on uh, living with uh, character and conviction. If you've been up in Rapid City, you, you've probably seen a, a, a billboard there promoting understanding and unity uh, between people. And it reads this in quotes, quote, a house divided cannot stand. And then it attributes that quote to Abraham Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln used that phrase in 1858 during uh, the acceptance speech when he was nominated uh, to be the Republican candidate for president. And the context, of course, was the, the Republican Party platform, which stated a willingness to even fight uh, to be able to end slavery. And it was in opposition to the Democratic platform, which wanted to maintain the, the status quo uh, of slavery. And, and Lincoln used that statement to emphasize that we need to come together as a country. We cannot remain divided over this issue or it would end up you know, tearing us apart. However, of course, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, many Christians would be able to tell you that Lincoln did not originate or come up with that quote. Uh, it came from the Bible, and more specifically from Jesus. And there are a lot of statements. I was going to go over a few today, but it, it just ran out of time. It would get too long of a sermon. But there's a lot uh, of English phrases that we use that found their origin in the Bible. And we're going to look at another one today, uh, and it's uh, the saying, the writing's on the wall. You've probably heard that saying multiple times. This particular one does not come as a quote from the Bible, uh, those words are actually not ever found in the Bible, but rather it describes the incident, the events that we're going to look at today. And the writing on the wall, we use that to signify we can see the end. We know how this is going to end. We can see the, the disaster, the problem that's coming. That's typically how people use that quote, and that's definitely what we see in Scripture. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. And uh, if you're just reading Daniel as a book, uh, chapter 5 brings about a very abrupt change. 
Uh, the last thing we saw from chapter 4 was Nebuchadnezzar, uh, after his period of seven years of, of insanity, being restored to his right mind, praising God, and, and then being uh, reestablished in his authority and power and position in the kingdom. And then you flip the page and chapter 5 begins by saying, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And, and you're tempted to say, wait, wait, hold on. Wait, who's this? What, what's going on? Where'd this guy come from? Because it's just this abrupt uh, change. And uh, it seems confusing for us to just kind of go from one king to another with, with absolutely no explanation. But, of course, we need to remember that the book of Daniel is not a history uh, concerning Babylon. Uh, it's not giving us a, a complete history of Babylon. Instead, it, it is uh, a book showing us how God works on behalf of His people, even those who are living in a pagan culture that denies God, which, of course, is what makes it so applicable to us because we're all living in, in a culture that denies the, the absolute rule and authority of God uh, around us. And so we, we have good application for all of these things that are going on. And, but because Daniel is not a history book, I mean, we, we miss a lot of what's going on. I mean, think of just the four chapters that we've covered so far. Um, uh, chapter 1, and we've looked, each chapter is one individual event, uh, so to speak. Chapter 1 covered a, a total of three years of history. Uh, chapter 2 was just two days. Chapter 3 was just a single day. And, and then chapter 4 actually covered eight years, but seven of those years were summarized in a single verse. And so of the 43 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that's all the information we have. Uh, there's obviously uh, a lot of gaps, not a big detailed history. And so now what we're doing is we're jumping ahead to some guy named Bash, Belshazzar. So let me fill you in on a bit of history just so you know who this guy is and where he came from. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar became king in 605 B.C. That's when his father died. He ascended to the throne the same year that, uh, that Daniel uh, and, and the other captives were were, were uh, taken captive and brought back to uh, Babylon. And after he died in 562, 43 years, he was followed by his son, a guy named Evil Merodach. Uh, I don't know who names their kid Evil, but sometimes we've been tempted to think that way. Uh, but that's a different story. Uh, evil Merodach. Apparently, uh, he was kind of a loser because nobody really liked him. And he was assassinated just two years into his rule by his brother-in-law, uh, Neri Glissar. Uh, and he also happened to be the general of the Babylonian army. Well, the general, he only lasted six years on the throne when he died, and his son, uh, his son Labushi Marduk, became king. And his reign, I guess he was even worse, his reign only lasted two months uh, before some conspirators decided they needed to steal the throne from him, which, of course, meant another assassination. And the conspirators... 
chose a man named Nabonidus, uh, who happened to be an, a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, to take the throne. And officially, insofar as all the records that had been found and unearthed from Babylon, Nabonidus was listed as the last king of Babylon for many, many years. And that caused, of course, a lot of people to sneer at and dismiss the book of Daniel since it calls Belshazzar the king when, when the empire falls here. So for many years, skeptics you know, claim, no, the Bible's in error and all this kind of stuff. It's all wrong. Until it is that some archaeologists discovered the Nabonidus cylinder, which uh, contained a lot of uh, more records, and it had the name Belshazzar on there. And, and from this cylinder, they found out a lot of information. Apparently, Nabonidus was not a very popular guy in Babylon because he was a devotee to the moon god. Uh, interestingly enough, the moon god's name was Sin. Uh, I think if you're going to have a false god naming him sin's probably a good idea. But, but um, um, anyways, he was a devotee of the moon god Sin instead of the main god of Babylon, which was, was Marduk. And so this didn't make people happy. Well, he was such a devotee that he went out and about raising temples to the moon god. And the powerful priesthood of, of Marduk said, that's a good idea. You go out and stay away uh, for a long time, which he did for 10 years. And, and so being gone for 10 years, he decided he needed to have someone be kind of a co-regent with him in Babylon, the city itself, and he named his son Belshazzar to that position. Uh, and since... So Nabonidus was the actual king, but since Belshazzar was there in Babylon, and since he supported Marduk, it made everybody happy, uh, they all called him king. And that's how that history uh, worked out. Um, Daniel, during all this time, what was he doing? Short answer, nobody knows. We got, we got 23 years of history now that have taken place. And there's not one word about Daniel. Now, we can make a pretty good guess. When, when Daniel was taken captive, we don't know exactly how old he was, but a teenager. So let's say he was 17. By the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that would make him 60 years old. And, and chances are when the new king came in, and if not him, since he was Nebuchadnezzar's son, for sure when the next guy came in, since he assassinated uh, the son and wanted his own rule, chances are they got rid of all the old uh, advisors, kind of shuffled them off and surrounded themselves with the new guys, the young guys who were going to tell the king what he wanted to hear and give him the advice that he wanted. And so most likely, Daniel was given some minor job because we are told in chapter 8 uh, that even when Belshazzar was king, he was still working for the king. So he probably had some minor job stuck in a basement office, you know, doing useless information, and everybody just kind of forgot about him. Um, uh, he's, he he's, would now be, at, at this point, around 80 years old, probably just over 80 years old. And he was a, a forgotten man in the kingdom. 
Now, now one other thing about the setting that doesn't really come out in chapter 5 until the very end here, and that's that the Medes and the Persians had joined forces to become a, a world power. And they had recently conquered a great deal of land and territory outside of Babylon, some of its um, far-reaching areas that it controlled. And now it was beginning to move on Babylon itself. And so Nabonidus, the king, came, made a quick trip back to Babylon, gathered the army together, and went out to the Tigris River uh, to try to stop them at the borders. And he was defeated and fled. And now this this army led by a guy named Cyrus had a straight walk to Babylon, unhindered walk to Babylon. At that time, the largest, most powerful city in the world. And it had, as, as I mentioned uh, last week or the week before, uh, these massive walls uh, surrounding it for protection, had a moat around uh, that as well. And it seemed like an impenetrable city. And they were pretty much siege-proof as well. They had the Euphrates River, which ran right through the middle of town. Uh, And so they had all the water they needed for fresh drinking water. And they had huge granaries that were full and and provided enough food for 20 or more years. So it's it's not like they could just surround the thing and think, hey, we're going to starve you out. Uh, they, they just had everything they needed. And so Belshazzar uh, felt safe and secure, even though Cyrus had surrounded Babylon with his army. And, and how confident did he feel? Well, he, he felt so confident that he threw a great big party, right? Which brings us back to verse 1 in, in chapter 5 there. He invited a thousand of his nobles to, the, to this party, and they began eating and drinking like gluttons. And after he had drunk for a bit, Belshazzar decided to get the gold and silver goblets, which Nebuchadnezzar had pillaged from the temple in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon and stuck in his own temple, and then they had been left there. Well, Belshazzar decides to get them all out and use them uh, to party with and to get drunk and, and, and to do this thing. And that was obviously a, 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 a way of spitting in the face of God. It's his way of saying, our God, Marduk, he's so much better than all these, these other gods of these countries that we have, have conquered. And maybe it was his way uh, of trying to bolster the, the morale of all his nobles and leaders to, to remind them of, of what all they'd conquered in the past. Whatever his reasoning, he took that sacrilege and, and that profanity to the next level by using those cups of God to toast and to praise the gods of Babylon. Now look at verse 4. It says, They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But just as he was in the middle of this drunken revelry, something very astonishing happens. Suddenly, the finger of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the, of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. 
as they've done excavations of, of the, the palace in Babylon, uh, as you would expect, it's all these great big old stone walls. And, and they found the throne room, that massive throne room that I told you about. And about halfway down the long wall, there's, there's a niche, a, a grotto back there where they would have assumed that's where the king would have sat during a big banquet if he was hosting a banquet there. And interestingly enough, this entire grotto is plastered with white gypsum uh, would have been a perfect place uh, for this writing uh, to take place. Um, and as you might expect, when, uh, when you see a hand floating in the air and, and writing on the wall, it kind of freaked the king out. And, you know, check out verse 6. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. I mean, that is a description uh, of a man who is really scared. He is terrified, right? The phrase, hip joints went slack, it might refer to, you know, uh, a man uh, who who's just lost all strength in his legs. You, you, you've maybe seen someone who, who has just gotten really scared, uh, and, and they just lose all strength, and they have to sit down. But But since... Nebuchadnezzar probably, or I mean, uh, Belshazzar here was probably already s- sitting down. Uh, you know, he was feasting, drinking, and eating, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it might mean something else. The, the, the literal translation, the literal way that phrase reads is this. The knots of his loins were loosed. It sounds like someone needed to change his pants to me. And, and, and that's probably uh, what this is referring to. And, and, and you have to understand, this was not just some drunken hallucination that he was going through because the writing was literally physically there on the wall. It could be read by others. So God really did use a, a floating hand to communicate his message in this case. And, and Belshazzar immediately uh, sent for all his wise men because he understood that this message was probably for him. But by this point in the book, I hope you've got this figured out now, that when all the wise men show up, they're a bunch of incompetent fools. And, and they don't disappoint in this particular case. They have no idea what this means and how to interpret it uh, uh, for the king. Um, and, and that makes him even, in, even more scared. And he doesn't know what to do at this point then. And at that moment, the queen enters and, and saves the day. Now, this queen is not identified. Um, it says earlier that Belshazzar's wives were, were in there eating and drinking with him, so it's probably not uh, his queen. Uh, most likely, it was either his mother or his grandmother, uh, and his grandmother would have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Um, and whoever she was, she was old enough to have firsthand knowledge about Daniel. Daniel, who was apparently no longer included in the cast of wise men, the, the officials of the court, because he didn't get called in there. He was this forgotten king. Uh, and, and remember, it had been 23 years since, since he had served. He's, he's this 80-year-old guy. But now look at how the queen describes him. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods and in the days of your father illumination insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and king nebuchadnezzar your father your father the king appointed him chief of the magicians conjurers chaldeans and diviners so notice 
the dig that she, she puts in there and there. Nebuchadnezzar made him chief, but you guys discarded him. And now this discarded guy, he's probably the only one who can help you. And, and she refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father because the Chaldeans, and actually the Hebrews for that matter, uh, do not have a word for grandfather. And, and so you were either a person's father or you were an ancestor. And so, therefore, uh, uh, a closer relative um, was always just referred to as father, whether it was grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever. So, Belshazzar calls in Daniel and and promises to give him great riches and and promotion to the third ruler of the land if he can read and, and interpret this writing. And, of course, he had to say third ruler of the land, right? Because Nabonidus is really the king, and, and then it's him. So that's the best he could offer. And Daniel tells him, you know, I don't need your gifts. You can keep it yourself. Uh, I don't want them. And he wasn't being rude. He was making sure that the king knew, you can't bribe me into giving a good report or a good answer for you. And before then, Daniel goes ahead and reads and gives the interpretation. He gives Belshazzar a mini-sermon. And again, like always, I would encourage you to go home, read the whole chapter, and get all the details of this and and the sermon there. But he reminds the king of the fact that God is ruler over everything. And and that was a lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way by becoming like a beast for seven years. And then he hits him with the main point of the sermon there. He says, yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. And then only after emphasizing Belshazzar's arrogant pride and blasphemy by by desecrating the gold and silver uh, vessels of the temple does Daniel then read and interpret the writing on the wall. And here's what he says. Now this is the inscription that was written on the wall. Many, many tekil upfarsin, which, you know, just... You know, if there's any Chaldeans here, uh, just I apologize. My Aramaic is not very good, and I probably mispronounced all those words. But uh, anyways, Daniel immediately goes on to give the explanation. Uh, This, he says, is the interpretation of the message. Uh, Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. And that's repleted, uh, again, as a way of giving emphasis. It's an end. This is the writing on the wall, the end has come. Uh, Tequil, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And if you're wondering why that's a different word there, that's actually the singular of the plural uh, ufarsin. Uh, U uh, was the word and, so it's saying and this final thing. And then farsin was the plural Uh, He gives the interpretation in the singular. Anyway, pretty straightforward message, right? And all in all, really bad news for the king. Uh, But he does what he had promised, making Daniel rich and the third ruler in the land. And Daniel, of course, knew this was all useless uh, because the kingdom was about to end. In fact, it is quite likely that even as Daniel was giving this message to the king, the Medes and the Persians had breached the city uh, through an ingenious plan. They went way upriver uh, in the Euphrates to this, this, found this big low-lying swamp and, and dug a canal 
all the way from the swamp to the river. And at just the right time, they diverted a big uh, portion of the uh, water from the Euphrates River over into the swamp, created a new natural uh, big lake over there. Uh, and and um, the soldiers then that were surrounding the city were able to get in the river because now it was only thigh deep and walk in under the defensive walls that were protecting the normal flow of the river into this, the city. And since they did this in the middle of the night, nobody knew what was going on. And, and they get out, and it's, it's really called the bloodless coup. I mean, they took over with, with hardly a fight at all. And all of that is really summed up for us in just those last two verses of this chapter, that same night. So this happened on that same night. That's why I say it could have happened even while Daniel, this could have been going on while Daniel was giving his message. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So now, again, we come face to face with just a fascinating ancient story but probably one wherein the details will never actually be duplicated in our lives, right? So what lessons can we draw from this account for us today? And, and, and I have three of them that I, I'd like to share with you, and I'm, I'm going to do them all in the negative. In, in other words, these are three things you shouldn't do, okay? First, don't take lightly serious things. Belshazzar, he, he got it all backwards, right? In fact, one might be tempted to say Belshazzar was an idiot, uh, but, you know, that's not very nice language, so we, 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 need to, we, we probably need to be more tactful in how we would say that. So if we're going to use biblical language, right, we'd say Belshazzar was a fool. Uh, Proverbs fourteen sixteen, which Daniel would have very likely have been familiar with, says, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. I mean, Belshazzar was both arrogant and careless. He had a very situ uh, serious situation surrounding him, right? In the form of a foreign army besieging and surrounding his city. But he was so certain that Babylon was invincible that he threw a party instead of preparing for and guarding against war. And then he took lightly the sacredness of the gold and silver uh, vessels from the temple. All the kings before him had just left them alone, but he used them to get drunk and to praise his idols. He took lightly some very serious things, and it cost him his life. We can be tempted to do the same thing in many areas in our lives. Physically, for instance, right? We might ignore that persistent pain in our body hoping it will just go away. I mean, who needs to see a doctor anyways, right? Uh, or, or disregard that spot that we see growing on our skin because, you know, it's no big deal. Or maybe, maybe relationally, you see signs that your marriage might not be as strong as it should be. But, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm too busy to deal with that now. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll work on that someday. And oftentimes, you end up realizing, maybe too late, that someday 
never comes. Spiritually, we might close our eyes to that, you know, that blinking red warning light in our conscience. We know what we should do, right? We know what the Bible says, but we tell ourselves, it's not really that significant. It's just a a little thing. I'm not really going to give in to this temptation. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm I'm just going to get close because, you know, I want to hang around with my friends or whatever it is. And like Belshazzar, we think the protective walls that we've built up are strong enough to withstand the assault. So, you know, I'm, I'm not really in any danger here. I, I can go to that party and I can be okay. I can flirt with this temptation and, and not stumble. I, I can wade into the water of sin and, and, and not drown because, you know, I'm just going to stay over here in the shallow end. It's going to be okay. And God... He put that warning light in our conscience for a reason, or or maybe he brings that warning through a close friend, the advice or counsel of a godly friend, a a sermon, a song that you hear. So we all need to ask ourselves, is there a serious situation? And flirting with sin is always serious. Is there a serious situation that I'm taking lightly? If so... What steps do I need to take to avert disaster? I mean, we don't want to be like Belshazzar and find out it's too late. Lesson number two, don't miss the lessons from history. I mean, to me, one of the most poignant statements Daniel makes is is when he tells the king, after reminding him everything that Nebuchadnezzar had gone through, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. How many things do we know? Because, you know, we've seen others go through it. But then we don't apply the lesson to ourselves. And unfortunately, I mean, I think it happens way too often. For some reason, we we, we often think that somehow we're going to be exempt from the consequences. Well, I I know that happened to them, but, you know, it won't happen to me. I'll just give you one example. I mean, we, we could talk about many areas where this happens. I'll give you one common example. Years ago, I had a, a young girl share with me through tears that she was pregnant and her boyfriend had broken up with her. And as she was talking, she made the statement to me, I never thought it would happen to me. And I thought in my mind, and this was in my mind, I didn't say this out loud to her because at that moment she needed you know, some compassion and, and care and understanding. But in my mind, I'm thinking, what didn't you think would happen to you? You, you didn't think that some boy would say whatever sweet things he needed to say to get you into bed? You didn't think that if you had uh, sex, you might get pregnant. You you didn't think that maybe this boy would just dump you instead of taking responsibility for this child. What didn't you think would happen to you? Because you know what? We've seen that storyline over and over and over again. And if we don't learn from history, if we don't learn from the stories of others, 
then pretty much the only option left for us is to learn ourselves the hard way. And I'm guessing, you know, nearly everybody in here can tell you learning the hard way is not much fun. So here, here's the good news, right? God has given us a book, a book with the stories of lots and lots of people that we can learn from. And some have set a very good example, others bad, but we can learn from them both. So let me give you just a little bit of uh, of free advice here. Take a good look at whatever you're facing right now, including whatever choices uh, are before you and the decisions you have to make. And, And then go to God's Word. And I'll bet you that you can find the story of someone who is facing something very similar, either comparable circumstances or or having to make the same kind of decision that you do. And and learn from them. And, And maybe you think, well, you know, those things happened so long ago. It's just, it's not really the same as in modern age and and today. And of course, I would argue with you on that. But even if you felt that way, here's another thing God did for you. He made you part of a family. And I can guarantee that you are not alone. Someone has gone through or has faced what you are. And by being open and honest with one another, we can actually learn from each other. And and, and if we do that as fellow Christians, we can actually encourage and build each other up through that. You don't have to learn things the hard way. Choose to learn from history. Make use of those lessons from other people. Lesson number three. The honors of this world are short-lived and useless. Right? Belshazzar gave Daniel a purple robe and a golden necklace all to signify his position of power in the kingdom. Know how long that lasted? One night. The next morning, Darius had taken over the kingdom. And everything Belshazzar had conferred upon Daniel was useless. And Daniel, you know, he didn't even want those things because because he knew they'd be of no value. It's a shame how much time and effort people put into seeking the, the tributes of this world. A higher status, a greater title, a bigger treasure chest, right? And none of those things will last. And I'm not just talking in the ultimate you know, sense of it's all going to burn someday, right? Which, which, of course, is true. But even now, right, before the end comes, these things just don't last. It's kind of like that new car smell that, that so many people are enamored with, right? You ever get into a brand new car and everything smells so fresh and clean and it smells new. I don't know what new smells like, but that's what it smells like. It's new. And we like that. But then dirt gets carried in on people's shoes and cat and dog hairs come in on people's clothes and some kid 
leans back against the seat with this sweat-stained T-shirt, and, and then a Slurpee gets spilled, and it's all over, right? It, it just it goes away. And, and that's how it is with the honors of, of this world. They just don't last very long before they don't really mean anything. And in the end, it is all going to burn. So we need a different perspective. How, how much better? for us, like Daniel, to focus on the things of God. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean not achieving in this world, right? Daniel achieved a great job success and, and status. But his focus was on, on honoring and serving God. He did everything he did to give glory to God, and, and he lived based on spiritual realities instead of seeking the things of this world. That become even more evident next time when we see Daniel and Darius and, and his lions. So three lessons for us. Three things we don't want to do. We don't want to take serious things lightly. We don't want to miss the lessons we can learn from others so that we don't have to do it ourselves. And we don't want to focus on the honors of this world because they don't last. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, again, the, these, these accounts of Daniel, the things we can learn from his life. And God, they are so pertinent and up-to-date to us. We pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would grow through these things, that we could walk in faith, walk and live a life of character and conviction the way Daniel did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.